0: Philippians 2, starting in verse 14, Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine like lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that, In the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Thank you, Josh. All right. All right. Good morning, Flourish and Grace. How are you? Uh, my name is Benger. If we haven't met yet, I'm, I'm glad to meet you. Um, there's a difference, there's a difference between having a plan and putting it into practice, right? Let me let me prove this to you. Um, how many of you have ever thrown away a to-do list that only had like one or two things marked off? You just like gave up and you threw it away. Anybody ever did that? Yeah? If you're not raising your hands because... You don't do to-do lists, all right? That's, that's what I know about you. Um, how many of you, this is personal, I know, how many of you have canceled a gym membership after going one or two times? Yeah, okay. Okay. Some honest people love it. Love it. Um, This one's personal uh, to me. Uh, Jennifer and I, at the beginning of every month, we kind of lay out a budget for the month and and where we're going to spend money, and and we make a plan. And the financial software we use, um, as you go throughout the month, each category that you have laid out, um, if you've underspent in that category, the the bar it shows you is green. But if you go over that. Uh, it becomes red. And, and sometimes we get to the end of the month or we get three weeks into the month and, and we sit down for a checkup and, and we look at our budget and it is all red and we just say, hmm, let's, this really has come out of our mouths. Let's try again next month, shall we? Like there is a difference between putting uh, between a plan and putting it into practice, and this is just a, a thing thing. This is, this is true whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. This is something that you know is true about life. And this is what we're going to talk a little bit about today. Um, to to kind of lay the groundwork for that, I want to back up over the last couple of weeks. We've been, um, as, uh, as John and Josh mentioned, we've been in a series Uh, called Indestructible Joy, and what we have been doing is we've been walking through this letter that Paul wrote. He was in prison at the time that he wrote to the Philippians. Uh, At the very beginning, um, the first week of the series, we looked back in Acts, and, and we saw kind of the first day that, that Paul showed up in Philippi, and, and now he is writing to this, this church that, that has grown. There's a community of followers of Jesus, and, and Paul is writing to these people. In the last couple of weeks, um, we have seen, uh, really backing up to the beginning of chapter two, really at the end of chapter one, Paul has begun saying, okay, these are some of the things that, that you need to keep in mind. These are some of the things that you need to do. And and as we've seen, Paul kind of begins and and talks about um, what it means to to be humble, to to look to somebody's interests rather than your own interests, what it means to be unified in that. But the centerpiece, as Paul gets into it, really is Jesus himself. Um, Two weeks ago, Pastor Josh, uh, who was just up here, um, walked through that section. It's a beautiful section of poetry, especially right there in the middle, uh, about who Jesus is and, and what he came to do for you me, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but but he emptied himself, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, and that was for you and me, and this is really the center point for Paul. He said, okay, these are the reasons why you should do what I just talked about, and then coming out of that uh, last week, Josh Gardner, uh, and maybe this is like your third week, and you think, well, I, I heard Josh preach the last two weeks, but I think they were different Josh's. They both had beards, but they looked different. Yeah, they were both different Joshes. Josh Gardner um, walked through what it means to work out our salvation, as Paul puts it, with fear and trembling. And it's really important to note that Paul doesn't say to work for your, for your salvation, but, but to work it out. Really, God has, has saved us through Jesus, and, and, but he continues to do something in our life. And as a response to what Jesus did for you and me on the cross, if you're a follower of Jesus, how he purchased you by dying on the cross for you, We seek to have God transform us and to work in our lives, and and last week we read that it is God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. It is God doing it in us. We surrender to him, and and he does it for his good pleasure because he delights in us. It's not something to clean us up so that, okay, you got to clean yourself up, and then maybe, you know, I'd like to be with you. No. God loves us, and because he loves us and he saved us, he continues to work in our lives to will and work for his good pleasure. There's something God is doing in us. If you are a follower of Jesus, uh, God just didn't leave you there on the day of your salvation when when you came um, with your need and your brokenness and your sin and you laid it all at the cross of Jesus. He's like, okay, that's great. We're just going to kind of leave you there until eternity. God is doing something in your life because he delights in you. It's for his good pleasure. Now, the thing about the last couple of weeks is, is I've seen a lot of head nods because there's a difference between a plan and putting it into practice. Now, we don't get real vocal around here. Like There's not a lot of amens, uh, but, but, but sometimes if somebody here really gets really excited, you might, you might get that kind of grunt, right? Mm, yeah, I've heard a couple of those. Because it's beautiful, thank you, because it's beautiful, it is beautiful to hear about what Jesus did for us on the cross and what that means, it's beautiful to realize because God delights in me, he's not trying to dress me up so that one day I could come to him, no, he delights in me so he's working in me, right, there's a lot of head nodding, but there's a difference between a plan and putting it into practice, and sometimes we leave it at the head nod, right? Right? Today, what Paul's going to do is he's going to get really practical, and and he's going to connect what we just talked about into kind of the putting it into practice part. And what we're going to do is there's going to be kind of three things that we look at today. Paul's going to get practical and give us the how. Like, okay, so, so... All these things uh, that that we're going to do, we're we're going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're going to allow God to work in us because it is Him working in us, not us. It's not our effort. It is allowing God to work in us because He wants to will and work for His good pleasure. So how on the ground practically rubber meets the road does that happen? And then Paul's going to talk about the results of that. Like if, we, if we allowed a God to work in us in that way, what are the results of that? Like what could happen in our lives and what could happen around us? And then Paul is going to erupt in joy about all of that, and we're going to look at these things. And because we're really good sometimes at head nodding and not putting it into practice, um, we're actually going to have three questions I think that this text asks of us because it's really easy just to say, mm, that was really good. That was really good. But it's hard sometimes to consider these questions and actually put them into practice. My goal for us today is that what we've been talking about, today we would put them into practice. Does that make sense? All right, as we dive in, we're gonna gonna back up to last week really quick um, because what we talked about last week is connected to this week. So starting in uh, verse 12, one more time, Philippians chapter two, verse 12, it'll be up here on the screen. Um, This is what Josh Gardner read and preached through last week. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Remember, this is not earning it. It is, it is coming to Jesus. It is being obedient to Jesus and his teaching because he loves us, and we want to reciprocate that with our love, and we do that through obedience. For it is God who works in you. You don't have to come up with this on your own. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then Paul gets Practical, okay, Paul. What do I got to do? I got my notebook out. Uh, church attendance. Do I have to go to church like maybe three times a month? Okay, every day. Okay, that every every week. That's great. Maybe there's some Bible reading. That's really good. Bible memorization. There's a preacher on the stage, and so probably somebody's going to ask for money at some point in time. Like, what is it? What do I need to do to actually put this into practice on the ground? And Paul says this in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Sort of. Yeah, that's what it says. All right, so this is good. But if I'm honest, as, as I read this, um, I just went on a road trip with my kids. Apparently, fall break, you take your kids on a road trip. And uh, it was a great road. We saw a lot of things. Uh, probably wasn't as cool as Yosemite, but it was, it was pretty fun. I love my kids. I love hanging out. But you know what made it a really great road trip, if I'm honest? Maybe this is just me as a bad dad. I'm sorry. My kid's in here. Sorry, Sammy. Me as a bad dad, maybe, maybe this reveals something. that The thing I liked about it is my kids did a great job. They didn't grumble. Complain or really fight with each other too much. At least less than they normally do. Like it was, it was really good. This seems like advice a dad would give on a road trip. Just do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't argue, right? Don't complain. Now, this is good advice, and what we have to keep in mind is that, is that Paul, as we back up, Paul says, do all things, and, and certainly this applies to all situations. But when Paul says, do all things, we'll see him do this again in chapter 4, when he talks about doing all things. What he really is talking about, what he has in mind, is especially what we just talked about before. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both the will and the work for his good pleasure. As you allow God to work in you, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now what Paul has in mind as he talks about this, um, most likely is the ancient Israelites. Um, if you know the story of the Israelites, um, when they were in the land of Egypt, they were enslaved in the land of Egypt. They, they went there because there was a famine, but then they grew and because they grew in might, um, Pharaoh turned them into slaves. He enslaved them and through Moses and through these signs and wonders, God delivers them from slavery out of Egypt. And this is where the, the Passover dinner comes from on that faithful night and, and they, they escape and they get to the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is following him, they don't know what to do, and God does a miraculous work, and the Red Sea parts, and they go through on dry land, but the Red Sea comes back together, and the Egyptian army is obliterated, and God delivers the Israelites. One thing the Israelites are known for during this time is grumbling and disputing. You see, just a year, year and a half later from that event, as as the Israelites go towards Canaan, which is the land God said, man, I've got a place for you. This is where I'm bringing you. Remember Abraham? I promised this land to his descendants. Guess what? You're his descendants. Like, this is it. I've shown you what I can do. I promised that I would be with you always. I've come with you the entire way. Like, I have not left you. And I've proven this to you. And then they get to the promised land. And when they get to the promised land and they're, they're going to go in, they send some spies to check it out. There's a lot of really big people in this land, a formidable foe. Like, these think people are huge, bigger than they are. And they, they're going to obliterate us, they say. The spies kind of trump up these, these, these bad reports about the land. And they exaggerate the, the size of these people. And they say, really, it's a bad and evil land. It's going to tear us apart. Like, like We don't need to go in there. And there's really only one spy who says, no, 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 hold on. Don't you remember God? Like, like God's got this. Like, it's a good land. God promised to us, let's go. But instead, the Israelites do this. Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. It'll be up here on the screen. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. In other words, in spite of all that God has done, in spite of all that God has promised, this is not the way it should go. And they grumble, and it's important that we, we realize when Paul is saying grumble and, and, and complain and argue and dispute, as he's talking about this thing, he's not talking about, man, my day is going poorly. He's not talking about, man, I, I'm in this hospital room and my son or my daughter is on this hospital bed and I don't know what to do, and bringing those complaints to God and mourning before God. No, what he's talking about is a fundamental lack of trust in God. And that is connected to grumbling. Really? Well, yeah, take a look at this. As the Israelites, and and this is not the only instance of grumbling. This is throughout their whole wandering through the wilderness. The Israelites have escaped from Egypt because of what God did for them. They are up against a seemingly impossible situation and a formidable foe, and God delivers them from that. And here they are up against a difficult situation and a formidable foe. And they say, God, no. I don't trust you. Put the chains back on. Wouldn't it be better than for God to bring us here to this place? What is God going to do? Who who is God that he can possibly help us in this situation? Who is God that, that he can possibly deliver us? No, put the chains back on. I'm going back to slavery. I'd rather die in the wilderness. What this is, is a fundamental lack of trust in God. And believe it or not, this is connected with grumbling and complaining, because this isn't just about, oh, I don't like this situation. Remember how Paul begins this little section. He says to the Philippians, back in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And in all things, do all things without grumbling or disputing. as we have looked over the last couple of weeks about what God is doing in our life. Remember that last week was an invitation to allow God to surrender the things in our life, to, to open up our lives, to say, God, would you peer in? Would you look in? Would you prune what needs to be pruned? Would you remove what, need, what, what is there that shouldn't be? Would you add in what is of you that is not yet there? Would you please work in my life? All of that is incompatible with grumbling, and then the eventual result of grumbling, which is disputing. That happened among the Israelites, and Paul knows it's possibility that this could happen among the Philippians, but he talks about it a couple of chapters later, about some things that have happened. Now consider it this way. Let's say that I woke up every day. I, I don't do this, but I should, and, and I say, God, as, as, a, as a husband and as a father, I am open to what you are doing in my life. God, I know that there's places where where I fall short, so would you give me your eyes to see how I can love and care for Jennifer? Would you open up my heart, and if there's any bitterness there, would you remove that? And God, would you help me confess that? Where there's a lack of patience and love, a lack of a desire to serve, a lack of humility, would you put that in there? God, I am open to what you have for my life. God, as a father, I am open to how you want to teach me. God, I want you to grow because I know, I want you to grow me because I know that you are working in me because of what Jesus has already accomplished for me. You are working to will and to work for your good pleasure. God, would you do this? That attitude, that stance is completely incompatible with grumbling and complaining. Now, I want to be very, very clear Again, this isn't about not questioning. Some of us grew up in, in, or, or maybe experienced a, a religious situation where it wasn't okay to ask questions, or if something happened uh, that was difficult, uh, you just put on a good face. You faked your way through it. That's this is not what Paul is talking about here. Remember when he says grumble, he's talking about a fundamental lack of, tr- lack of trust in what God is doing in our life. So it's not that we can't have questions. It's not that we can't say, man, God, I'm confused and I want to bring this before you about trusting what God is doing in our life because that is incompatible with grumbling and then disputing and arguing amongst ourselves. So here's the question for this first section. Are you trusting God as he works in you? As we go back to last week, remember there's a difference between a plan and putting it into practice as we nodded last week and said, yeah, God, God saved me and, and he works in our lives uh, and because he delights in us. It's not that we have to clean up, it's for, it's for his pleasure. So he knows where we started, but it's his good pleasure that he works in our lives and he sees that we are different than we were before and, and that is Jesus himself working in us. Do you trust God as he is working in you? The opposite side of that is grumbling and disputing. And if there's a lot of that going on in your life, then chances are there isn't a lot of trust in what God is doing in your life. And there isn't a lot of obedience to the teachings of of Jesus when he says to love and to forgive and to serve and to honor. Before we move on for this, again, I want to make sure this is really, really clear. This is something that God is doing in our life. That is why it's so important to trust. That is why the opposite of this trust is grumbling and disputing. Because when we grumble and dispute, again, it's not just, man, I had a bad day and I'm going to bring it before God. It is that we don't believe God should be on the throne of our life. We say, God, I could do it different. God brings us up to the promise saying, God, I know you delivered me from Egypt. I know you delivered me from the Egyptians. I know you split the Red Sea. I know you've brought me this far. I know you've done these incredible things. Like I was hungry and you, you made this flower stuff appear on the ground every single morning. Like, God, you've done amazing things, but I've come up against this. And no, I am not going to trust you any further. That's what it means to grumble. That's what it means to dispute. Now, Paul continues working through kind of this illustration of the Israelites. And again, if you know the story of the Israelites, because the Israelites went up against the promised land and they believed the spies and they said, no, I'd rather go back to Egypt. I'd rather die in the wilderness. I'm not going to go in. God says, all right, you're going to wander around the wilderness for 38 years until a new generation, this, this current generation dies out and the new generation rises up. Maybe they will trust me and I will bring them into the promised land. And towards the end of that time, uh, Moses, at the end of his life, as he's led the Israelites through the wilderness all these years, he is nearing his death, and and he writes kind of a song, a poem, really an address to the Israelites before he dies, but it's not a mushy love song by any means. It is a warning to this new generation that has has now grown up not to be like their parents and to trust God when he says, I'm going to deliver you into this place. One choice verse is here in uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. Again, it'll be on the screen. Um, screen. Uh, Moses says this. So he's, he's giving this address, but he talks about the Israelites in the third person. They, meaning the Israelites, have dealt corruptly with him, meaning God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Sound familiar? Paul, Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 do all things without grumbling or disputing verse 15 that you may be a blameless that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life Paul takes this image of the Israelites and he kind of turns it because this isn't like a letter against the Philippians. The Philippians were actually doing pretty well at many of these things. Like the Philippians were doing, okay, Paul takes this and he says, really what the Israelites were doing is is they were doing what you see the rest of the world doing today. When he says crooked and twisted generation, it's not just like he's throwing stones and trying to call them names. It's that they are incompatible. They are different than the ways of God. And, And Paul says you should look different among the rest of the world. When he says That you may be blameless and innocent. This isn't moral perfection. It's not like he thinks they're going to get there this side of heaven. What this is, is is about describing their conduct among those around them who don't know Jesus. That as they allow God to work in their lives, as they trust in Jesus, not only for their salvation but for their transformation, that they would look different than those around them. And Paul says as he turns it, you're not going to be like the Israelites were, which is how the way the world is. You're not going to be a crooked and twisted generation. Now, among them, you are going to shine as lights in the world. Paul brings up a, a couple of images here. One of them is going back to the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, um, where, where uh, Daniel talks about what it looks like to, to surrender to God and be righteous. But also, Paul probably has in mind the teachings of Jesus at this point. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, um, Jesus says this. "You," He's talking in this teaching to his followers. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put, a lamp, put a light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul says, because of how Jesus is working in you, the result of that is that those around you We'll see who Jesus is as he works in your life, and they will give glory to him. And, and the thing is, this isn't one of those situations where you just try to be a good person, and then you hope someday your neighbor or your coworker will come up to you and say, hey, psst, come here. I've noticed you're a really good person. I've noticed you're a really good dad. Can you tell me about Jesus? Like, maybe that works out for you, I don't know. But the reason Paul says holding fast to the word of life, this isn't about, I, I hope that, that one day somebody will notice. No, 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 it's holding fast to the word of life. And this isn't a defensive posture. Sometimes I, I think we take this in a fortress mentality, like, oh, I gotta hold on to this word, and, and, and I've, gotta, I've gotta fight for it, and I've got, no, no, no. What Paul is talking about is this message of life that he first brought the Philippians. If we read back way back in Acts, uh, we covered this, Josh covered this the first week of this series when we were at the park. That first day when Lydia uh, and and the the slave girl and and the the jailer all came to know Jesus because of the word Paul had brought to them. That is the word of life that Paul is talking about, this word of salvation. And we hold fast to this because that is the very reason why anything in us can change and is the hope that we can bring to those around us who don't yet know Jesus. Now, I want to be really careful here. This is not an invitation to hypocrisy. It is easy to, to read something like this and think, okay, I, I've got to be good for Jesus and so people around me can see Jesus and can think I'm so amazing and when they ask Benjamin, why are you so amazing? I can say, well, it's actually Jesus. Thanks for saying I'm amazing, but it's actually Jesus. No, that's, this is not an invitation to hypocrisy. This is not an invitation to fight in the minivan all the way to church and, and, and yell at your kids and then you get out and there's smiles on everybody's faces like... We're just glad to be here. Never happened in my minivan. <laughs> now, this isn't an invitation to be honest about who we are and how Jesus is working in our lives. We can't take this as an invitation to hypocrisy as if we have to pretend like things are better than they are. This isn't an invitation to so, you know, put on this face that's happy when, when everything is going wrong. This isn't an invitation to pretend like we're better than we are. However, it's also not an invitation to false humility. It's not an invitation to, to, to not give glory to for what Jesus is doing in our lives. See, this is how it should look. When, when you're talking to your coworkers, when you've gotten your neighbor and you're talking to your one, you can be honest about the stuff in your life that shouldn't be there because you know that Jesus is working on it. And when you're talking to somebody and, and, and maybe you're, you're, you're sharing a little bit and you say, "Yeah, this, this is stuff that like Jesus is working on, but I man, think this is bad, you should see me five years ago, by God's grace, according to His glory, because of what Jesus has done in, in my life, man, He has worked a miracle. Friends, I, I feel bad for my oldest daughter because I am a different dad than I was 14 years ago, honestly, by God's grace. You should be able, when you talk to those around us, you should look different because of what Jesus is doing in your life. When you're at work, you shouldn't strive. It should be different. You should be known as a person who doesn't strive, who doesn't step on somebody else, who doesn't try to take credit for everything that's going on around them, but instead you give credit. Even when it's due for you due to you, you give credit to your teammates around you. You're not striving for that raise. You're not striving for that promotion. You're actually serving those around you. And you should be honest. And you can say, man, I'm growing in this area because of who Jesus is. When you got your friends at school and, and, um, and, and you're in theater or you're in soccer and, and all these things, as, as you uh, do these things, you should serve others. You shouldn't step on others. You shouldn't speak poorly about other people. When you're on social media, it shouldn't be all about you. And you should say, the reason is because God is growing these things in me. And as we do, we will be a light on the hill not because of anything we have done, but because of what Jesus has done in us. Friends, this is not an invitation to hypocrisy. This is an invitation to be honest about what Jesus is doing in us. And so the question is, as this is happening, do people see Jesus working in you? Do people see Jesus working in you? And again, we gotta be careful. This is a result of what we just talked about. This is a result of, of, of surrendering our trust, surrendering our agenda to Jesus. This isn't, okay, I, people don't see Jesus working in me, so I've got I to fake a few things. No, no, no. Go back to step one. If you are a follower of Jesus, allow Jesus to work on you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God delights in you. He is working in you. It is not your effort. It is not your power. It is him working in you. And as that happens, do people see Jesus working in you? Because they should. They should. It should be different. And this is Paul's hope for the Philippians. That not only would God work in them, not only would they be faithful, would not not only they hold on to the word of life for themselves, would not only that they endure, but in their enduring, in their obedience, in their faithfulness, that Jesus would be known as the King of kings and the Lord of lords in their lives and of the universe. That is Paul's hope. And in light of that, Paul then goes on to this joyous proclamation. Paul says, verse 16, Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's not getting braggy here about, hey, look what I did. Paul is saying this. Listen, when I get to eternity, when I look back on the other side of eternity, when I'm finally with Jesus and I look back, I want to look back on your life, Philippians, and I want to say, it was worth it. I did not labor in vain. Not just because you came to know Jesus on that first day, not just because you surrendered your life to this this Messiah who humbled himself to the point of death and death on the cross because he loves you, but you allowed him to work in you, and you did these things, and as you allowed Jesus to work in you, other people saw Jesus, and they came to know him. Paul says, I want to look back, and I want to rejoice on that day in what God is doing in your life and what's really cool is as we step back from this letter as we step back on the life of Paul and we look at at the whole kind of spectrum of time um, from the point when Paul first had an encounter with Jesus and Jesus saved him on the Damascus on the road to Damascus. this is incredible you go back to Acts chapter eight chapter nine Paul I wonder sometimes as he writes these things Paul himself before he traveled from Town to town, starting churches, telling people about Jesus, beginning these communities of followers of Jesus. He went from town to town, arresting followers of Jesus and overseeing their execution. And then he has this encounter with, with Jesus on the Damascus Road, and, and he is blinded, and finally he sees Jesus for who he is, and he surrenders his life to Jesus. And as he begins to tell people that Jesus man, the Christians don't want anything to do with him. Like, no, that's Paul the murderer. They're not, they're not praising God at that point. Like, who is it? No, 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 no. This is a trap. This is the same guy. Like, his name was Saul, now it's Paul. I don't understand. It's the same guy. He murdered Christians. In fact, Luke puts it this way when he writes about Paul at the very beginning when he saw in Acts, he was breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. Friends, I don't know what's in your background. Saul, who turned into Paul, was breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. But as Paul, Paul was saved by Jesus, as Jesus saved him and then transformed him, and by the way, Paul is not a finished product. We'll see this later on in the letter of Philippians. We see this in Romans, that Paul himself struggled with this transformation. Like, I'm not there yet. There's more to be done. I wonder if what Paul, looking back as he imagines himself looking back across the years from eternity, as he has given his life to Jesus and surrendered to Jesus and been transformed, and as he has allowed himself to be poured out, poured out his life for people like the Philippians so that as he once was saved, transformed, and in doing so told people about Jesus, now the Philippians who have put their trust in Jesus would continue to endure, would continue to trust Jesus as he's working in their lives, showing trust, not complaining, not sitting on the throne of their lives, but allowing Jesus to sit on the throne of their lives. And as they do that, shine like lights in the world. A city on, the, on, on a hill cannot be hidden. That in doing so, it's almost come full circle. And they are doing the things that Paul himself has done. And I believe that as Paul is joyful, we have to ask ourselves, why is Paul so happy about this? Why is he joyful? Why does he rejoice? Why is he kind of exclaiming in song almost and and inviting them to rejoice with him? He's in prison. He is in prison. Well, Paul is rejoicing because the thing that he has put his hope in to save not only him, to save not only the Philippians, Is Jesus himself. And Paul, from that day, on the Damascus road, decided to pour out his life for the sake of Jesus. Not just that he would be obedient, but that others would know him. So the question is this for ourselves. Like, what, is, what are you pouring out your life for? What are you pouring out your life for? And Listen. I don't know the specific answer for you, but I know how to find that answer. Um, Josh and I talked about it a few weeks ago. Um, The answer to this is is really the thing that brings us the most joy or that we think will bring us the most joy. And for you, that's the things that, that, that you spend your money on. That's the things that you spend your free time on. These are the things that when you go on walks or, or you kind of are stuck daydreaming, these are the things that are, are fixated in your mind, the things that you think will bring you the most joy. That is what you are pouring your life out for. Paul is pouring out his life so the Philippians and people like them would know not only who Jesus is, but would experience that transformation, would experience this working out of salvation, that they would endure, that they were to be obedient, not in their own power, but just because they choose to trust rather than grumble and dispute. And from that, remember, that is where the rubber meets the road. There's a difference between a plan and putting it into practice. Putting it into practice is submitting to Jesus alone. Trusting Him alone, not just for our salvation, but as He works in our life. And the result of that is that we would shine like lights in the world, not because we are anything, but because Jesus is working in us. And as we rejoice, as Paul does, we pour out our lives to that end. Friends, this is, I think, the invitation that Paul calls us to today. But again, we need to be careful. If we realize, man, I'm, I'm pouring out my life for something else, we can't just manufacture this in this moment and say, well, I'm going to choose this. If we realize that, that, that people don't see Jesus working on us, we can't manufacture that in our lives and say, okay, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to do a little bit better. I'm going to try a little harder, and then maybe people will, will see me as something good, and maybe they'll ask me about Jesus. No, no, we have to go back to the beginning. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Fundamentally, Uh, trust Jesus by surrendering everything to him So, Jesus what your agenda is is my agenda what you value I value do a work in me do a work in me not because I am anything but because you Jesus are everything and in doing so in doing so by your conduct, by how Jesus is working in you. We'll be a city on a hill. Not to point to us, but to point to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Friends, this is my desire for Flourishing Grace Church. This is the dream. Not that sitting here, you would have some sort of experience and and, and that you would have a a quiet moment with God. Those are really good things. Not that we would come and sing songs and, and, and feel the presence of God. That's a really good thing. But God, as he works in us individually, and as he works in us together, that in our obedience, as we we leave grumbling aside, as we put Jesus back on the throne of our life, that disputing would end. And that together, this would be a place where Jesus is proclaimed, not just in song, not just in word, not just for an hour on Sunday, but in our very lives. In the boring, mundane moments of parenting. On the stressful days at work when you're tempted to mouth off to your boss or, or, or talk about somebody behind their back. When you're, you're tempted to put your own interests above the interests of others. Those are the moments when Jesus is working. That's why Paul starts with something so mundane as grumbling and disputing. Because that's where trusting in Jesus to work in us begins. Just imagine, just imagine if we give ourselves to that, what, as Paul wrote about today, could be the result. Again, not because we are anything, but because Jesus is everything. May our lives proclaim that. Let us pray. God, thank you. Thank you that as um, Paul can look back to the first day for the Philippians, I can point back uh, to a moment of time when you awakened to my soul, to my need and my brokenness and my sin, but also at the same time to your goodness and your mercy and your love and your justice, all of which was fulfilled in Jesus God, for all of us, for all of us who name the name of Jesus, would we look not just to that day for our confidence, but we would also look to you who works in our life day by day. Would that change how we work day by day? Would we, would we not grumble and demand that you do things differently in our life, but would we surrender the throne of our life to you And God, in doing so, in the boring, imperfect, difficult days, would you work in us? And would those be the moments that your glory would be known, that Jesus' name would be lifted high in our lives, in this church? And Father, would that bring us the most joy? Would that be the thing that we pour our lives out for? God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Let all the people say, Amen.